Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. For this year's Advent sermon series, God's providence would have it that we have come to the 11th chapter of Isaiah in our series through Isaiah. You remember chapter 10 is a dismal picture. It's a picture of God's judgment upon Israel. God uses Assyria a pagan, God-hating nation to bring discipline to his people who have turned from him. And he takes the axe of judgment, and the tool in the hand of God is Assyria, and he lays waste to Israel. After he does this, he forecasts that immediately he will then bring judgment to Assyria in like manner. It's a terrible picture of God's just judgment coming down upon kingdoms in rebellion to him. Even his own people, who have been given this throne, have been given this privilege, prosperity, he brings judgment to them and he uses Assyria to do it. Chapter 11 gives us that great hope, not just the hope of Israel, but the hope of the nations. As Isaiah prophesies the coming of the Messiah King, who will be unlike any other king. He'll have a kingdom unlike any other kingdom. In fact, really what Advent is about It's about the coming of God's kingdom on earth. Uh, With the king being born in a stable, uh, the king does the work of Messiah on behalf of the people in the kingdom. He dies for them, and that's in Isaiah as well. But Isaiah doesn't really separate out. He just talks of the messianic kingdom and puts it all kind of together as an encouragement to the people of God. We now, having seen Jesus fulfill much of what is in Isaiah, understand Messiah King's purpose. He conquers people for himself. Then, as he ascends into heaven, God seats him at his right hand where he rules from that place, and he sends his spirit to conquer more hearts for himself, to conquer a people for himself, to expand his kingdom. And that kingdom expanse goes on as Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, no matter what the external circumstances say, whatever it feels like in our particular place, make no mistake, the king is on the throne and he's expanding his kingdom. And it will come to consummation and perfection and righteousness. And Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus comes, gives us a picture of all of that. For the next four weeks, we'll look at Isaiah chapter 11. 16 verses, just two today. And I have 10 verses listed for you on the outline because it gives us a context. You'll notice verse 1 and verse 10 serve as bookends for what happened in between. So we'll walk through these verses together. But for now, here as I read God's holy word, Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion 
and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Of this passage, the commentator Oswald notes the messianic hope which began to be expressed in Isaiah chapter 7 and which was amplified in chapters 8 and 9, the passage that Zach read earlier. It comes to full flower here in chapter 11. The Messiah is not merely promised or announced, but is depicted as ruling. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we see in the person of Christ the greatest king of all. Against the backdrop of failed human kingdoms and kings, we have the light of the Messiah King shining. We celebrate Jesus' coming and his kingdom. We are encouraged with the realization of the Messianic kingdom having come and grown. We are emboldened about the present and future because we are mindful of who is seated seated at your right hand, guiding and governing bringing your people to faith and advancing your kingdom. And even despite the wicked attempts of man to extinguish the light of the gospel on earth, Lord, you give your kingdom success and you grow it. Lord, give us, your people, a clear picture of your kingdom as we reflect on the rule and reign of Christ over these weeks of Advent, studying Isaiah 11. Increase our love for and devotion to you. Shape our lives by the knowledge of King Jesus on the throne, having come and coming again. Pray this in the name of Christ, the Messiah King. Amen. Lodgepole pines, they're not the same as ponderosa pines, but they dot the Rocky Mountains beautifully. These lodgepole pines have been under a particular attack for over 20 years by what is called the mountain pine beetle. Now, these beetles have been around for quite some time in North America, but due to drought conditions over these last 20 years, many more pines are stressed, and stressed pines are the ones that the mountain beetles go after. And basically what they do is they only fly once a year after they've uh, done their work on a tree, and they fly off and they burrow into the bark of another tree and then they burrow throughout that bark, separating it from the rest of the tree, and that's what kills it eventually. It doesn't take long once these beetles build these tunnels into the tree for it to die. It was 2006 when my family started going to Colorado for a vacation at a camp. And we walked along the Rainbow Trail, which is a beautiful trail that goes across the Sanger to Cristo mountain range, and you could walk it for miles if you want, uh, dotted with creeks and little waterfalls and wildlife everywhere. It's a about 11,000 or maybe 10,000 feet. It's just a beautiful, beautiful walk through the pines and the aspens of Colorado. And I remember distinctly as you go up to the trail, there, would, there was this huge forest you'd enter into, uh, this forest of these lodgepole pines. This is in 2006. But in 2008, there was an epidemic of these beetles because of drought conditions. 
And it is said that over a million and a half acres were destroyed of these pines by these beetles. In fact, you could see it just two years later. Driving up to the mountain range, you see so much brown in all that evergreen. Just dots of, little dots of green, everything else brown, because of this little beetle. Well, because of safety, uh, the forest department had to come in and basically cut down these trees. And private landowners had to do the same. The camp had to do the same. And it was a terrible sight. Trees fallen everywhere and stumps. And it took forever to get those, those limbs and those branches and the trees themselves picked up. And they tried to use them for various things to make use of what was wasted. And when it was removed, what used to be beautiful and picturesque would be just dead stumps everywhere. Uh, just sticking out out of the ground, rotting and ugly. What a picture. And that's the exact picture that God uses to describe what it looks like after he brings judgment upon Israel. And not just upon Israel, upon Assyria. And when you look at the scope of time, not just Assyria, but all the nations who rise and try to expand themselves for their own namesake, which is really the definer of most every kingdom that has existed, this side of the fall of man. And God brings the acts of his judgment, and only stumps remain. And if you could picture that scene, looking upon what used to be a glorious forest, with trees falling everywhere, dead stumps with no hope of life, but there's one stump. One stump, and a green shoot comes out of it. A green branch that comes out of it. A tender rod comes out of just one, out of all of them, just one. It's the stump of Jesse. It's the stump from which David came. But now there's need for a new David, for an ultimate David, a Messiah David. That's what we have pictured for us in Isaiah chapter 11. Against the backdrop of man's fallen governance, both the people of God and the people of the world, we see the advent or the promise of the advent of a new king who would come and bring a kingdom that would last forever. The Messiah king says in verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So a branch would come out again from Jesse, like he did the first time with David, and it would bear fruit, something they had not seen in this field of stumps. Could not even imagine. Shoot, a branch, a rod, a stem, all terms that are used by the prophets to describe the coming Messiah. Zechariah uses it. In Jeremiah, the call to worship we had this morning refers to it. Franz Dalich, commenting on this passage and the devastation of God's judgment, says this is the fate of the imperial power of the world. When the axe is laid to it, it falls without hope. But in Israel, spring is returning. The message of Isaiah is one of God's judgment, that's for sure, but the message is also of God's kingdom announcement. God's kingdom will come, and it will be a kingdom unlike any other previously. It will not be limited to particular nations. It will not be relegated to geographic regions of the earth. It will transcend cultures. It will transcend ethnicities. It will transcend borders, and it will transcend time. The kingdom that will come with Christ will do what Adam failed to do. It will spread out on the face of the earth and make God's name known everywhere. Isaiah 11 before us presents the first vivid imagery of Messiah's purpose and rule. And we'll walk through it together over these weeks. Jesus' coming marks the beginning of a kingdom advance that goes on today. 
In fact, one of the great benefits of studying this book, it's similar to what it would have done for the original hearers. For them, it was a knowledge that God would restore his fame on the earth, and there would be reverence for him again. And the faithful among the Israelites, who may have been few, would have gained courage to withstand the difficult times in which they lived, knowing God will win ultimately. Now, we, these many years later, these many prophecies fulfilled later, with knowledge of Christ, looking back through the ministry of the apostles and the Spirit guiding and directing us to recall what Jesus said as we read it in his word. And now we can see how so much of this has been fulfilled, but we also notice we're still in the midst of this story of God bringing his kingdom. And it meets us individually as we are saved from our sins, as we trust in Christ and recognize how we are placed in union with him. We are part of his kingdom in this sense. But we also see it corporately and universally when we recognize that's how God expands his kingdom. By his spirit, sent from his son, saving people, saving a people for himself that transcends all these normal borders or these boundaries that we think of when we think of kingdoms or dynasties. I think that for us today, a proper vision of the messianic kingdom, that is the kingdom of God, will elevate our love for God and our devotion to him. When we understand what the real kingdom is like, we're not nearly as worried or anxious about the kingdoms of men around us, the ones we live in. Now, with this, let's go to the the text itself. And we'll see in verse 1 this great promise with a wonderful picture. And we see here that in order to write the flawed governance of man, which has been on full display in Isaiah. In order to write the flawed governance of man, the Messiah will come to establish his righteous kingdom. Verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, the language is certainly important for us to recognize as Isaiah doesn't talk about the Davidic covenant, which is a clear promise that God will keep a king on the throne and will provide an ultimate king. It's not that that covenant is gone. It's not. But the people in their experience can see nothing but stumps. They can't see a divinic monarchy any longer. They would not be evident to them. So he goes back to the stump. Uh, The language of Jesse would remind them of the promise of David to come. It's the reality of their situation. It was that bad. It was that devastating. He goes back to reference Jesse. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. The promise to David in his house came from the prophet Samuel. He said, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now we see how that will happen as Isaiah looks forward to the Messiah coming. God promises David a house, a line of kings. Israel was fallen here. This passage gives us one of the many promises of God to bring a king and a kingdom that would be the ultimate fulfillment of David's kingdom. Now, keep this in mind. By 700 B.C., when Isaiah is writing, that's 700 years before the time of Jesus, when he's writing, the world has an established and clear and known track record of kingdoms and dynasties. It wasn't like uh, they were unaware of kingdoms and great kings. Before the time of Israel, up into the 8th century B.C., many kingdoms and dynasties were known. In Africa, the great kingdom of Egypt, of course, 
thousands of years old, 3,000 years, some say, that kingdom went on. Israel had nothing to compare with when it thought of Egypt. Despite its great exodus from it, it was recognized as one of those great kingdoms of the earth. The kingdoms of Cush and Carthage. In Europe, the Greeks were starting to rise. The Minoans, the kingdom of Athens, before the time of Israel even. The Spartans, before the time of Isaiah. The Romans starting to rise as well in another part of the world close. In Asia, the kingdoms of Kish and Ur. You know, when we think of kingdoms and dynasties, I'm sure that those who lived in the ancient Orient would laugh at what we think are long. You know, I used to think Hunan Dynasty was simply a a Chinese buffet in St. Louis. But it's a dynasty that lasted 1,500 years. A family dynasty in the Orient. The Xi Dynasty, the Shang Dynasty, the Zhao Dynasty, centuries old, before the time of Israel. Certainly, many could recall kingdoms and dynasties and kings and rulers. Of course, the land that Israel was given once had great people as well. The Canaanites, the Amorites, the Philistines, the Phoenicians, and of course, the Assyrians. Soon after, the rising Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians. A world with kingdoms and dynasties known. A history replete with these. Powerful long-lasting, dynastic. Of course, Israel had to be considered a true world power, relatively young compared to the others, nevertheless spectacular in its times of glory. David and Solomon referred to with great reverence and respect by these other kingdoms. Rehoboam, Abijah, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and the great Uzziah, who was the king during Isaiah's initiating ministry. But what do all these kingdoms, what do all these dynasties have in common for all their glory? All of them felt the weight of the acts of God's judgment come upon them and they were gone. And very few of them were gone with peace. Because what happens in the heart of man when he puts off God as he seeks a kingdom for himself and he tries to expand himself. And we see it at the beginning when someone kills another, a brother, early on in the book of Genesis. And it's not too long after, at the Tower of Babel, when a leader decides to assemble everyone and distinctly defy God, who says, spread out and multiply. They say, we're staying here, and we're doing what we want to do, and we're going to build a tower in case you ever send one of those floods again. No kingdom, no kingdom is forever except for Christ's kingdom. Every kingdom will fall. Every kingdom will wane, every dynasty will be gone, and they'll all feel the same judgment. We've seen it even in more modern times as we studied the kingdoms or the empires of Britain and France, the empire of Japan, as they called themselves, Uh, the great Soviet Union it was described as. The rise of powerful kingdoms and nations is the history of earth, and it's the falls that should really stand out to us. And this great empire of America will have the exact same fate in much less time if it continues. But the kingdom of God, the kingdom we should be of most concerned with, it transcends all these kingdoms. The kingdom of God continues to grow under Messiah's reign from heaven, and it matters not what it looks like externally. That's the beauty of the kingdom of God. It's a spiritual dominance. It's a a conquering of a king of people's hearts and lives that transforms people in places, and he will continue to do it until all that he has called come unto him. And he will return then in glory to bring perfect and wide-sweeping consummation. It's a kingdom that cannot be stopped. It will never end. 
it will only grow. And even when you bring the sword against it, it only expands. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. If you notice down in verse 10, another description is given for the Messiah. That's just a touch different. comes from the stump, or it's, it's related to the stump, but it says, in that day, the root of Jesse... Now it's called the root of Jesse. It was called the shoot from the stump of Jesse. So there's the stump outwardly. We can see it. And the shoot comes out. That's Messiah who's going to come and bear fruit. But it says now that the root, which comes underneath, and you can't see, the root also is of Jesse. So wait, Jesse's root, the one who made Jesse, has the shoot coming out. This is a king unlike the Davidic king. This is an eternal king. This is one who comes before Jesse. This is the God-man. This is the Messiah king. And this is why he is the ultimate king. And no king could ever displace him. Beautiful picture of the eternality of King Jesus, of the royal king in the line of David, but the divine God-man. When man fell and paradise was lost, God promised to send Messiah to right the wrong. The wrong that came with sin wasn't just man's individual condemnation to death and hell, like all of us face apart from Christ. That's not the only wrong that happened. It was bigger than that. There was a rebellion against the kingship of God himself. And Messiah's advent or coming means a restoration of, yes, you and I to God the Father through faith in Christ, through his mediatorial work for us. For sure. But there's a bigger picture happening as God makes individual salvation a reality. He's calling a people to himself, and he's turning devotion back to himself so that proper reverence and submission is given to him, the true king. And he's doing it through the Holy Spirit working, sent by the Son, to expand that kingdom, and it cannot be stopped. Redemption, restoration, salvation, yes, they're personal. They need to be personal for you. But make no mistake, redemption, restoration, and salvation are also corporate, and they mean a sovereign kingdom where Jesus reigns. Now, how does Jesus do this? How will Messiah do this according to Isaiah? How does he forecast that this king will be so different than the other kings? We'll look at verse 2. We see Messiah accomplishes this victory or this mission by the power of the Holy Spirit, God himself. Verse 2 and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest, rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, the Spirit of God has a distinct ministry in the Old Testament. In fact, often brought up when a certain king or a prophet is anointed for a task. It's generally a temporal anointing. The Spirit of God giving the authority of God. But here, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And then the fruits of the Spirit, the things that the Spirit will work, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, things that no current king in their remembrance, even the great Uzziah or the king Hezekiah, who will come in a little bit, they don't fulfill this. The Spirit of God working by the will of God in cooperation with God the Son, this makes for the perfect king. 
a superior kingdom to any before and any after, a spiritual kingdom. The flawed idea of man, that he could become mighty on his own, that he could save himself. Well, only those endued by God's Spirit will see the, how this is wrong. And a kingdom that cannot be defeated by worldly forces will be built by Messiah, by the Spirit who rests upon him that he then sends forth. Now, I want to be clear about something. This is not to say that Jesus was deficient of these things and needed the Spirit in this sense, but rather because Jesus takes on flesh to do the work of redemption for us, there's a sense in which God the Son gives up certain access to attributes to the will of the Father, and so the Spirit comes to give assistance to the God-man while he does his work on earth. That's why Calvin wrote, Christ wasn't deficient in gifts of this kind, yet as he took upon him our flesh, it was necessary that he should be enriched with them, that we might afterward, and this is key, that we might afterward be made partakers of all blessings of which we are otherwise destitute. So God, the Son, represents us. The Spirit guides and directs the Son to do the work of Messiah. So when God the Son completes the work of Messiah, which he does, and he ascends into heaven, he sends that same Spirit to us to give us faith, to unite us with Christ, and to empower us to speak the words of the gospel itself, to live out the fruit of the gospel. And he expands his kingdom in just this way. Look at the six different, you might say, fruits or outcomes or attributes of the Spirit of God working through Messiah perfectly. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. There there are really three couplets Wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and fear. Fear of the Lord. First, wisdom and understanding. This has to do with his intellectual life, what he knows is true. And a completely perfect interpretation of that truth. We can know what's true, but not know how it applies. That's what makes knowledge and wisdom different. He has wisdom and understanding. Uh, Discernment and judgment perception. He can make perfect judgment. There's no miscarriage of justice. He knows exactly what's happened. That's why it says in John 2.25 of Jesus, he knew what was in man. Insight to the true nature of things the Messiah has. Also a spirit of counsel and might. Zach read earlier from Isaiah 9, and we read this throughout the Advent season, especially throughout the year for that matter. The mighty counselor. He's able to assess and decide, and then act. This is the key. He can act. He doesn't just recognize. He, he has the power, the spirit of counsel and might. He can do it. He can act upon it. How many empty promises do politicians make or kings and queens make or moms and dads make? But Jesus has the spirit of counsel and might. He can do it too. It also says he has the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is a direct relationship with God that he has as the God-man. The spirit of knowledge, he knows what's true, and when you know what's true of God, you're absorbed with a fearful reverence for his holiness. The fear of the Lord is the heart and core of biblical religion, as it has been said. Piety and devotion. For Jesus, this is a humble submission to the will of God 
to complete the mission that Messiah was given. It's not just about feelings. It has to do with commitment and accountability to God. This is what makes Oswald, a great commentator on this book, says, Pious feelings and ecstatic experiences are as nothing unless they are underlied by the pervading consciousness of God's reality, his holiness, and our accountability to him. And that is what Messiah had and possessed, and that is why he accomplished the mission given to him and the ultimate victory that he will win in the end. And he does so by the power of the Holy Spirit resting upon him. In the New Testament, when John gives account of Jesus, the description that we have painted as John the Baptist, who has been forecasting, he's that kind of prophetic bridge between the Old and New Testament. He's, he's that voice crying in the wilderness, prophesied hundreds of years before, and there he was, and he was telling people that Jesus would come. And then listen to the words of John the Baptist and the word of God as Jesus comes to present himself publicly now to assume the work of Messiah in the king. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, the Spirit. And it remained on him. It rested on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend or rest and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So the way Messiah accomplishes the mission that God gives him, which we are victorious because of. It's the same power that he sends to expand his kingdom, which goes on now. Messiah will extend his kingdom by his spirit, working in and through his people. Notice the last phrase in verse 1. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Edward Young comments, The fruitfulness, therefore, is of a spiritual nature, one that has to do with obedience to the Lord of creation, the actual ruler of the theocracy. On the throne there will be a son of David, one who will in himself embody all the ideals of the real Davidic kingdom. So when Messiah accomplishes his redemptive work by the Spirit, he ascends to his kingship at God's right hand. It is of no happenstance that David writes in Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus ascends and sits at the right hand of the Father, sends the Spirit to the church, to the people of God, and he grows the church. He grows the kingdom. John 14. The disciples are anxious. They are realizing this is not going to be the physical king we thought he was going to be. I think it was late in their ministry when they really realized, wow, we are so committed now. We thought he would be, he would be an actual physical fulfillment of David. And 
That's who we'd be lined up with when he came into the kingdom. And now they're realizing, no, he has different plans. He has to go to the cross first. You see, they read Isaiah like we might read it if we didn't have the knowledge of fulfillment that we have. We see a picture of a Messiah who comes. You can't avoid that in Isaiah he suffers, but you might skip over that to see all the victory and all the peace that comes in the righteous reign of Messiah, and you miss what he has to do. Well, Jesus is about, as Messiah, ready to go do what he has to do. And the disciples are realizing, whoa, this will not be this fulfilled kingdom the way we thought it would be. And for us personally, that's going to be tough. They're anxious. So Jesus sensing this in John 14 says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus says a few verses later, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Do you see how the kingdom advances? The same Spirit who gives Messiah the ability to fulfill his Messiahship sends that Spirit to us so that Christ from the right hand of the Father can move his kingdom forward. And it's humbling that he would do it through us. It's just the fact that he would do it through us shows that all the glory will be his because we know it could not happen apart from his divine hand. In John 16, two chapters after he gives the anxious disciples this word of encouragement, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Wait a minute. But Jesus, you'd be the best king. He's not relinquishing his kingship. He's just saying a physical person sitting on the throne here on earth is not better than the God-man ascending into heaven and sending the Spirit and extending his reign through people like you all over the globe. To undo what was lost at the fall when everybody congregated together in Babel, they wouldn't spread out. He's saying, I'm going to spread you all out by the Spirit. In Matthew 28, Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go forth and bring this message, and the Spirit will attend your way. And we know it's true because in the book of Acts, a full picture of this speech that Jesus gives before he ascends. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Forty days after he had risen from the dead, they see the glorified Christ. Okay, now are you going to bring the physical kingdom? They still think like this. What an inferior kingdom that would have been. Just another one of those physical worlds. No, that's not what Jesus does. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, because there will be a consummation, make no mistake. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Man may not have wanted to spread and multiply and cover the face of the earth, but I will make him, and I will bring my gospel to those places. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost arrived. They're together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one. Rested, depicting the Spirit of God resting upon them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The apostles were greatly empowered by the Holy Spirit 
and people were coming to Christ in mass. But the Jewish authorities, they didn't like this. The Jewish authorities, the very ones that the Messiah was sent first to alert, they didn't like this. And they arrested them out of jealousy. But God freed them miraculously from their hands. And when it was discovered they were gone, they had them rearrested, not having learned the lesson, and brought them back in and they were interrogating them. And they say to Peter and his compatriots, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us, Jesus. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. We must obey the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, they say, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Now before they killed them, an old wise Pharisee said, wait, hold up. We know of other leaders who have cropped up and after they died, their followers faded away. Let's not make a big deal. Let's not make martyrs out of these guys. They'll probably just go away. Now that Jesus is dead, they'll just go away. But listen to how he says it. So in the present case, this wise Pharisee named Gamaliel says, keep away from these men and let them alone. He's sensing something else is happening here. For if this plan of theirs or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Brothers and sisters, let's not be scared about anything today. I don't care what the tumult is. I don't care what uh, the latest debate says or what the latest laws passed. Do not be afraid. There is no reason to be afraid. Because what this old Pharisee says is right. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God, he warns. So they took his advice. Well, not completely. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And of course, the apostles, well, we better be quiet now. Right? Well, when they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Messiah will extend his kingdom by his spirit, working in and through his people, no matter what the external circumstances. And no other kingdom's like that. Every other kingdom needs force to advance. It needs force to protect and to preserve. But the kingdom of God doesn't need any of that because the power of God works in hearts and changes people and subdues them to himself, and he wins. That's why Paul says in Romans, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And only pastors should preach. That's not what it says in Romans 10. In fact, I'm just telling you what you need to be going out and doing. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is how the kingdom expands. And that's why it's superior to any other kingdom. And that's why Advent's really just a big celebration of the inauguration of the kingdom in Christ. A proper vision of the kingdom of God 
will elevate our love for and our devotion to God. The kingdoms of men come and go. Being under the rule of man can be exceedingly frustrating. With each new political season, the ineptitude of man seems clearer and clearer. The people of God. We have to rise above the fray of the times and look to the reign of Jesus on the earth, which began with Christ coming to Bethlehem. The kingdom was confirmed and secured with his death in Jerusalem. The expansion of his kingdom was declared and begun through the ministry of the Holy Spirit recorded in the book of Acts. His kingly reign is, pre- is presently active and is, as he is now seated at the right hand of God and calling his people to himself by the ministry of his spirit-empowered church preaching the gospel. And King Jesus will come again to rule in total righteousness forever. In the weeks to come, in Isaiah 11, we will see revealed the nature of the Messiah's rule and the way it will be when all things are made right. Let's pray. Father, we are easily mesmerized and taken by...